You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the show that nobody ever really wants to hear. It's the Anarchaeologist Podcast. Your host, Tristan Boyle, here bringing you the news from the slightly left-of-centre part of archaeology. This week, it's an Anarchaeologist Speaks, so a bit more of what's going through my head at the moment, and uh, unfortunately, uh, no guests this week, but don't worry, um, I'm hoping to have a few guests lined up for you uh, into the end of the year. So anyway, thank you very much for continuing to listen to the podcast, and um, continuing to listen to me ramble on about things. So today, I wanted to go over a few things. Um, Particularly having now actually done work on site, it's quite interesting the way in which commercial archaeology works in the UK, and um, it's quite interesting how different relations um, like occur. So I'll, I'll mention a little bit about actually working uh, for a commercial unit here in the UK, but I also want to talk about uh, my interactions with people when I tell them that I'm an archaeologist, because I, I remember being on the train recently and somebody asking me about Palmyra. So, I also want to top it off with a story that caught my eye in the newspapers this week, and it was the eco-home of the Neolithic. So, that is basically the kind of things I want to go talk about. Uh, cue the music. So I want to start off today with saying that, you know, uh, if you are kind of on the cusp of understanding what archaeology is and what you're going to get yourself in for at university, remember that there is a life after university. And although some people uh, admirably follow the academic route, there is also the side of basically, well, commercial archaeology, digging for money. <laughs> and, well, that's that's an interesting kind of, um, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I I was very fortunate in being allowed to work on a wonderful project down a, near, like, Edinburgh Way. And it was a fantastic, it was a nice little old cairn, and uh, it was really great just to be able to, well, <laughs> de-turf by hand, I mean, um, as great as that can be. It was really good to actually get some hands-on experience, and I think what what you realise slowly is that um, if you liked archaeology before, either you'll hate it or you'll like it even more. And that that was, for me, the most interesting part of doing something like that, digging like that, was that I actually just reinforced how much I liked archaeology. And I think that's really what made me kind of say, yep, yeah, I'm going to stick with this. Um I mean, obviously, <laughs> it, obviously, it's it's a hard slog, and uh, I must say, I incurred some fees in ways of uh, new belts and trousers because it didn't matter how much junk I ate; I seemed to always lose weight. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's the new diet, the archaeology diet, uh, guaranteed to make you lose weight. Um, but obviously, that brings its own challenges as well because you know you come back from a day and your hands are hurting like hell. So. I mean, it is something to definitely consider is if you are 
thinking about archaeology or you are studying archaeology, don't make the same mistake I did and <laughs> wait until you so happen to get picked up after graduating um, to actually go on a project. Definitely, definitely get as much experience as you can before you leave university. It is... Uh, is definitely something because it'll help you figure out if you want to do it or not. Um, so I mean, that, that, that was a discussion on site as well as you know who who wants to do archaeology. What are the people kind of coming into the field? And it's a very varied field out there because I hear people say, "Oh, there's too many people in archaeology who don't really understand what it is." And then there's other people saying, "Well, there's not enough graduates in archaeology to kind of keep going." And I think I think there's um, a few conversations that need to be had, uh, especially when it comes to contracts and you know and how secure archaeology is as a profession, because we're always wanting to kind of make you know raise the profile of the profession. I mean that's what the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists is there for, and it would be nice to actually see um, us progressing towards a career path of sorts. Because I think that's one of the things that archaeology is missing is a distinct career path, um, a kind of way of really understanding where you are in the whole scheme of things. And obviously there's things like um, CPD, Continuing Professional Development, I think, which is done by CIFA. And if you want to be part of the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists, of course, um, you have to do a certain number of hours per year of this CPD courses. And it can be, you know, GIS, it can be codes and practices, it can be you know, things to do with archaeology uh, and training. But um, it's interesting that, you know, while we have that, it's a voluntary, um, you know, if you really, and uh, B, you know, at the end of the day, you know, employers are looking for experience. So I must say that there is there's a, definitely a few conversations I think we should definitely have. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm part of the Scottish group here uh, for the CIFA and uh, I would encourage anybody in Scotland um, to really get in contact with um, the Scottish group. We're really interested in hearing what you guys have to say because that's that's how we kind of um, that's when we can respond to the CIFA um, as a group and bring up ideas and the uh, ideas and questions and queries to a uh, to a national level. And uh, I particularly want to really spearhead some sort of new generation stuff, you know, if you're an early career archaeologist or you're a student archaeologist, you know, um, I'd love to actually be able to start working on developing a better support network and a larger support network that stretches into Scotland uh, for people who are starting out in archaeology because half the time, you know, there there are a lot of questions that you don't really want to ask, you know, like, okay, well, you know, um, what happened, you know, <laughs> I don't know, do I always have to bring my own equipment, you know? Um, I mean, it depends on where you've worked, but some places will offer trials and mattocks and pickaxes. I think the bigger tools are pretty standard. But that's that's a good question. I mean, is a company who hires you out for a week, expect, are you expected to bring your own trial? I mean, the companies by law should always supply your PPE, uh, your personal protective equipment, and that includes the whole thing. So, you know, it's be interesting actually to see what companies do offer in terms of, you know, when it comes to short contracts. Anyway, if you're interested in talking to me, of course, you can get 
me on at anarchaeologist on Twitter, or uh, I'm now using an email address for the Archaeology Podcast Network, which is tristan at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now, the next uh, story I kind of want to talk about is this idea of this prehistoric eco-home. Now, I, I find this a funny thing because my first reaction was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't like this eco-home. Oh, yes, of course. We're going to, uh, oh, yes, the past. They did things so much better than us. They had eco-homes. Of course, this is once again <laughs> the way uh, the way the media reacts to archaeology stories. But let's let, let's kind of reel it back a little bit. So, um, uh, obviously, a number of papers are running with this, but uh, I've got my information from the Independent. Other papers are available, just <laughs> just so you know. And obviously, this is um, this site, this prehistoric building is near Stonehenge and obviously they're wanting the um, there's development going on with um, roads uh, around Stonehenge and in the Avon Valley uh, in Hull and what ha- what they find is basically a set uh, like a place of living which is about 6300 years old and um Apparently, it was immediately adjacent to the Sacred Stone Age Spring. To a Sacred Stone Age Spring. How we know it's sacred? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, um, the paper, the, the article goes on to say that the academics have adopted an eco-home because the base of the fallen tree was used as one of its walls. Now, what's really interesting is um, this idea that this was an eco-home. Um, we tend to think of eco-homes at the moment uh, in the present as econo- uh, like uh, environmentally friendly and, you know, um, homes that are kind of, they work with the environment, use environmentally friendly materials and almost blend into the environment. And it's quite interesting that we then take this common uh, modern concept and apply it to the past when it's pretty obvious that in the past, uh, I don't think it would have been called an eco-home because they didn't have a non-eco-home. Now, obviously, this is at a time when we are having um, still hunter-gatherers and semi-agricultural peoples um, walking around, and it it seems to have been built by indigenous Mesolithic hunter-gatherers at a time when um, European... Uh, Mesolithic, Neolithic settlers who were semi-agricultural were coming into the area coming up from mainland Europe now interestingly enough is that the tools that were found um, the flint and other different tools were Mesolithic um, and but the thing is that this is built around the Neolithic and what that means is that well obviously when with any sort of transition there's no cutoff point but um and obviously there's transitions everywhere but what's very interesting about this one is that it seems to be a very large distinction between Mesolithic Neolithic uh rather than a transitionary form so I mean that's quite that's quite interesting uh, that you still had this kind of um, tool assemblage 
quite far along, you know. I mean, interesting for archaeologists, right? <laughs> now, the thing is that um, there's a main road going to be built, and the problem is that um, when you level ground, um, you change the water temple, uh, table, the water temple, the water temple, the worst temple in Legend of Zelda, the water table, and raising or lowering the water temp, uh, the temple, my word, raising or lowering the water table often puts, you know, uh, things that are waterlogged in jeopardy. So, I mean, uh, in the archaeological record, things that are waterlogged, uh, and usually in quite high acidic soils, um, which is low pH, uh, usually there's a lot of organic preservation. That means that things like um, the organic component of bone, um, skin, tissue even, if you're very fortunate, um, can survive in those uh, conditions. I mean, wood can survive in those conditions for thousands of years. I mean, that's why we find such amazing preservation in things like peat bogs. So to have that is uh, it's very, very important to have those kind of preservation conditions. And if the water table was to um, recede, then it means that uh, these materials are no longer as well preserved. I mean, these are materials that we may or may not be there and that's that's the biggest decision in archaeology is to know if something's there because ultimately you could have the best preserved site from the neolithic somewhere out there in the landscape and you're worrying whether or not if you dig here and lower the water table whether you're putting that at risk and of course it could it could be nothing but if there is something then that is a very serious problem so it'll be interesting to see how this is dealt with properly and it's also interesting how eco has uh, moved from the present right into the past i mean originally i was kind of like oh no it's terrible we're just putting our own modern sensibilities on the past but then i thought actually yeah no we should use that word because that'll highlight the fact that we do put our modern sensibilities on the past all the time we use the past as a way to justify what we do in the present but funnily enough we have control for what that past is interpreted as so in some ways we're setting up the past to justify the present whether it's about eco homes whether it's about what political behavior we should take or any number of other issues where people say, actually, well, this is why we do it, because it's tradition. And that's what I've got a big problem with. But that's because I'm the anarchaeologist. And uh, I don't like people just following tradition for the sake of it. Next up, we have a unlooted grave in Greece. So, interestingly enough, Greece is a place with a lot of very, very old uh, history, but a lot of artifacts, and obviously Greece isn't doing too well at the moment. But it's amazing to hear that there are still things being discovered in Greece. Now, what's really interesting about this most recent um, discovery? This is from the National Geographic website. Um, is that there's a body found with 1,400 different objects um, around? Uh, the body, um, dating to about 3.5 thousand years ago. Now, the ma the skeleton is of a man in his early 30s, and it includes gold rings, silver cups, and um, bronze artifacts. 
Now, of course, um, <laughs> of course, the John Bennett from the uh, who's from the University of Sheffield, of course. Um, we do a podcast with the Archeo- uh, University of Sheffield. It's the Archaeology and L one. Should definitely go and check that out. But um, he makes a comment that uh, not since Schliemann have complete burials of this type been found in Greece. Now um, Schliemann, of course, um, in the nineteenth century, uh, he excavated Troy and Mycenae. Um, so it's quite a big, important. Th- <laughs> that's quite a big claim to make, uh, comparing it to Schliemann. Now, quite interestingly enough, you know, despite quite a lot of um, finds being found, there's still uh, a lot of questions raised. Actually, probably more questions raised now that we know more. Because ultimately, what does this body represent? And what do these objects represent? I mean, obviously, this person was, well, they had a lot of objects around them. They were probably very well regarded. But what does that actually mean? I mean, this is at a time before Greece uh, was in its prime. So what does it tell us about the people living before Greece became a power in the ancient world? Also, it's great to hear that there are unlooted graves out there and that there are places where we still have discoveries to make, and that's what makes archaeology so great. So next up, I do want to talk about... um, studies about the Mayans. And obviously the Mayans are a bit of a mythology within uh, archaeology because they are treated like this, um, um, you know, magical kind of over-the-top ancient civilization, you know, um, especially with the, you know, the blood rituals and the ancient spells. I mean, Maya is pretty much a go-to for any kind of archaeological media to talk about you know, the past with their temples and stuff, you know, um, especially recently, of course, the apocalypse that didn't happen. Um, I hope we all remember that it didn't happen. Or maybe it did. Maybe it was an apocalypse of another form. In any case, it didn't happen. And now the Mayans are are gone and hidden in the mists of obscurity once again. But interestingly enough, uh, a lot of people have not focused on the ordinary people in Mayan society. And interestingly enough, um, research has now pointed to the fact that Mayan civilization were very similar to our own, with unique stratifications and different accesses to resources. Now, um, what happened, what basically, what the research is, is... Uh, re- looking at animal remains and um, kind of figuring out how they relate to how different people uh, ate food, uh, who had access to which bones, and ultimately, you know, what kind of what was going on nutrition, you know, through these kind of edible resources to kind of basically using these edible resources to identify different stratifications within the society. Now, what's interesting is the bones come from, uh, the bones are stored at the Florida Museum of Natural History. And Ashley Sharp, who is a doctoral student at the museum on the University of Florida campus, um, she's the one who's been kind of going through these uh, this data through from the bones and uh, been trying to figure out 
what these stratifications are like. What's very interesting is that we can use the bones to basically trace the movement of these animals because we know where these bones were found. We know kind of where they're coming from, where they're indigenous to and where they're being shipped to. And obviously resources, as with any state, get moved around. And when they get moved around, we can kind of tell who they're going to, what they're being used for. Now, interesting enough, it's not just bones. You know, bones can tell us a lot of different things. I mean, for example, when animals are being, um, you know, um, de-skinned for their hide or, you know, to have their deferred, uh, what happens a lot of the time is that, um, you know, certain bones like the fingertip bones, the phalanges, um, are remain in the pelt um, when you skin it. A very lovely discussion here. But what's interesting is when you find tons of little phalanges all over the place without any kind of rest of the skeleton, you know that's a place where they were processing these furs and these hides because uh, that's where they were taking these small bones out. Now, obviously, uh, the Mayans used these hides, these animals for... Obviously, the Mayans used these uh, animals for hides, uh, jewellery, and even musical instruments, which is very, very interesting. Although... We, we kind of, we, we do that as well. We use, uh, well, we definitely used to use um, animal skin for drums and things like that. What, uh, what's quite interesting, particularly finding out about this, is that the basically middle-ranking elites um, used the most, uh, vari- uh, most variety of animals, whereas royalty and high-ranking elites um, focused on a select group of symbolic and prestigious animals kind of like uh, apparently jaguars and crocodiles and I must say that is definitely something uh, I don't know if anybody's tried jaguar or crocodile but I would definitely like to try I think crocodile I'll see what that's like uh, yeah crocodile would be pretty interesting I like crocodile it's got a bit of bite to it <laughs> elites and high-ranking royalty and high-ranking elites would eat only a select amount of um, animals like jaguars and crocodiles. I like crocodile. It's quite tasty. It's got a bit of bite as well. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, dear. Any sort of research that pulls apart the standard idea about how we look at something in the past is always welcomed by me. I think we always need to understand that the past is complex and has many different perspectives and ideas within it. And I think it's important that we bring those things out when we're talking about the past, especially to get away from just talking about kings and queens and royalty and everything. We should also focus on the day-to-day lives of people and the really boring stuff, because that's ultimately... Those are the kind of processes that go into creating the archaeological record. So finally, I want to talk about, I I was on the train uh, a couple of days ago, and, uh, you know, as you do, you just talk to people on the train, duh. And, uh, you know, I, I casually mentioned, ooh, yeah, not, not trying to throw it in or anything, but I did archaeology. And um, they were like, oh, okay, right, I want your opinion on this. So what do you think about ISIS um, destroying places like Palmyra? And my answer was, well, I think it's horrible, but 
I also don't understand how um, we've only suddenly realised how horrible it is. Because, I mean, the thing is, Palmyra was under a threat before ISIS was kicking around. It was under the threat of time. And, you know, it, it's kind of, it's funny that everybody's up in arms now that it's destroyed, but they weren't ready to kind of put the resources in to record it in the first place before ISIS had arrived. And uh, I think it's also um, wrong of us in the West to actually buy artifacts on the black market from ISIS and at the same time try and justify that we're doing the best we can by, you know, banging our fists on the table every time they destroy something. I think we should um, clamp down on the sale of um, artifacts and we should really understand that you know, it's not just um, buying, I mean, we're, we're funding them, you know, and we need to really step back and say, look, we can't let this go on any further. We have to stop this. Um, there are a lot of people looking at uh, and criminology and antiquities dealing. Um, if there are really cool things written by um, Donna Yates, Dr. Donna Yates from the University of Glasgow, um, if you look up her kind of stuff online, she got, she has really, uh, she's got really, really good, well-written stuff about uh, antiquities trading and dealing and stuff like that. But it, it's an interesting question because it is, um, it is a place where people finally feel as if they can talk about archaeology, they can talk about what the past means and how we deal with it. And I think that's very, very important. Um, so anyway, that's my kind of um, wrap up for this week. I'm hoping that you enjoyed um, listening to me talk. Of course, I like love listening to it as well. Remember, there are a lot of other shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network that you can listen to. We now have nine, nine, ten, ten shows. I think so. One of our latest shows is Go Dig a Hole. Um, so if you are an early career archaeologist, definitely go and check that show out. Um, there's also, of course, our collaboration with Archaeosoup. Archaeosoup um, is obviously is. Archaeosoup is a YouTube channel dedicated to all things archaeology with Mr. Soup coming and joining me occasionally for the occasional soup and sandwich episode. Now we have his uh, YouTube videos in podcast form for you to listen to. In the meantime, if you want to get involved with the Archaeology Podcast Network, we're always looking for people to help out, whether it's design, whether it's writing, whether it's doing social media stuff. So if you're interested at all in taking part in the Archaeology Podcast Network, please, please do get in touch with us at ArcPodNet on Twitter or at AnArchaeologist. In the meantime, stay classy, everybody, and uh, hope you didn't get too frightened during Halloween. Au revoir. of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www 
www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. <laughs>